Welcome to the Progressive Practice Podcast, social performance practice at the core of the energy transition. This first season is funded by the Tentrans Research Project. This episode is a deep dive into the experience in the field with one of the most experienced practitioners in the sector, Masechaba Mabilo, who worked as one of the first ED managers in the industry before going independent as consultant. Masechaba has always been a trailblazer and thought leader, active in the industry associations and beyond. Her career insights and ideas are such an inspiration to anyone who knows her. The same as our conversation with Tuli in the first episode, our chat with Masechaba was recorded during lockdown in July 2020. Hi Masechaba, thanks so much for joining us and having this conversation with us. Um, first I'd like to know, where are you locked down? and is there sun where you are? <laughs> okay, so I'm nicely locked out in Cape Town in my apartment. Um, now and then there's sun. Like at some point there was sun and I thought I'm going to go for a walk. And then suddenly there was rain. And now there's no rain and no sun. So it's, it's, it's one of those days. Yeah, we all yeah. have those. <laughs> Cool. So I'm just going to jump right into the question and ask you a little bit about the short version of the story of your career. So how did you get involved in social performance? So I was working as an analyst in banking and somehow really dissatisfied with the social value of my work, if such a thing exists. So I was doing a lot of data mining and analysis and we used a program called SAS. So one of the times I went for a SAS training and I met this lady, similar career um, background, and she was working as a senior analyst for another bank. And she was so excited because she just completed a master's in development finance. And she was excited about exiting conventional banking and going to work for a development agency in Limpopo. And she was really just excited around the economic growth in the area where she's from and how she could bring in her skills to stimulate, you know, what we typically call the trickle-down impact of this economic growth. And I think what she did for me is that she broadened my horizon in terms of what was possible. So from there, I left banking and went to work as a statistician at the energy regulator. And that was amazing because it allowed me to expand my understanding, or at least it exposed me to just that intersectionality between energy, the economy, service delivery and revenue management at a municipal level, and even just livelihoods at a community level. So it's these things that we normally treat as separate from each other, but they're so entangled with each other and directly impacting on each other. And I think that was an amazing process for me. And and then I took all of that insight and, and exposure into my role after that, which was a consulting or advisory role at KPMG, where I worked in climate change and sustainability. And I think there, what was interesting was also just looking at the multiple dimensions of sustainability and what it means in different sectors. And, and I think in those earlier stages, you could actually see how there was such a significant zooming in on the interaction between the environment and the economy. But we were struggling with the language of how to bring in the society aspect of it. Um, so, so even though everyone was looking at how you can integrate the environment, society was sort of 
still just a, a side intersection, you know, and, and there was just still that debate between CSI and CSR and what that means for business. And then while I was there, I think certain things in the South African context started happening that shifted the prominence or of the society aspect. Um, so I don't know if you guys remember, there was that protracted um, wage negotiation and strikes in the gold industry. And it soon rippled into the, um, the platinum industry. Next thing you had Marikana and there were other things happening in Mozambique and across the continent around really what company community relations look like, what the potential negative impacts are, you know, just beyond just we've resettled people, but, but really around agency and agency of community. And, and that time then we shifted our focus and started focusing on what we called strategic social investments, um, where we just looked across the spectrum from, you know, vulnerability risk assessment, you know, at a, you know, significantly a lot of it was in mining, surprisingly, um, and then assurances and then what value creation looked like, whether someone could be intentional around creating value. And, and I think after some time of doing that, I really wanted to get insights into, onto the other side of the fence. You know, because it's, it's, it's quite different to talk about it um, from a critical or an advisory perspective. But it's quite different to be on the other side where you're the person having to grapple those things. And, and that's when I joined the renewable energy sector um, as an ED manager. And somehow I've never been, I've never left the social performance side of the world since then. That's... Um... A fascinating journey and you spoke a bit about you know your learnings from the mining sector and from different industries and brought it into your social performance work um, and in a sense you also do have another type of background in mining which is that you grew up in the northern cape in a mining town so how did you experience the presence of mines and the company staff while growing up you know, what impact or benefit did the mines have on you as a child, as a teenager, as a young adult? And is there something that you wish you knew back then that you have understood now in your social performance space? Oh, okay. I actually thought this was the most difficult question. All right. So growing up, my experience of mining was that at one point or another, we all knew an uncle or someone who worked for the mines. And then we all knew someone, an uncle or a family member who'd been retrenched from the mines. And it seemed to be, you know, that continuous cycle. And, and, and really beyond that, I didn't know much around what potential impact mining can have on a community. In fact, when I was in matric, after passing matric, I was um, awarded a bursary by one of the mining trusts to go to university. And I think I'm really, I, I consider myself to be someone who's generally aware of what's happening in my vicinity. But in all honesty, until they offered me this scholarship, I didn't know about this mine community trust. Neither did I know that their relationship to me as a community member was that this trust held the community's share holding 
in the mind. Um, so, so I think my, my first perspective of mining after that was that mining and mining related growth can easily happen outside of and without taking the host community with. So, so unless there's some intentional focus around creating value for society and creating value for host communities, the mind can prosper without the host community. And in fact, I, I always remember um, being in Uppington for a launch of what could have been or what was intended to be a renewable energy training center. And this old advocate who'd been, I mean, he'd been a, just very much a, 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 someone involved in the struggle through for all, a lot of years in the Northern Cape. One thing he said to me is, how do we make sure that these diamonds in the sky, being the sun, don't leave our communities with nothing else but a hole in the ground again? Because that had been the dominant experience of mining um, in the Northern Cape. And, and since then, you know, just observing, you know, the different economic transitions that my community has gone through. I think the largest social impact that a mine can have on a community is actually through employment and through access to opportunities for host communities more than it is around you know, the social investments. And the reason I say that is that after all these years, and for me, like I said, growing up in a community where there's been mining forever and forever and forever, the first time we actually started seeing the impact, the positive impact of mining in our community was when the mines in our area started being intentional about employing local people from having, you know, learnerships, from having a training college for local people. So when we started seeing a lot of people from our community working in the mines, having a career path where, you know, they can grow and start occupying senior positions when they started earning good wages, that was the first time you started seeing, you know, growth and development beyond the mine in our communities. Because, right, because people from our area were starting to earn they were spending their money in the local community, so giving rise to a secondary economy within that same community. Um, you started seeing people investing in their children's education, building houses, all of these things that had, you know, that had far-reaching consequences than the millions and billions that the mines had spent on socioeconomic development in our area. Um, you know, I remember when... I mean, I just, I just want to add another thing that when people started working on the mine because of, you know, um, everyone going regularly for medicals, for example, you started seeing people at a community level knowing that they need to take better care of their health. You know, everyone knows when everyone's shift is starting so that, you know, yes, you've got to stop drinking in advance. You've got to do this. You've got to do that if you want to access the mines. So there's just all this overlapping well-being and livelihoods impact that the mind could start having in, in, in our area. 
Um, a lot of people always talk about the Goomba employee share scheme payouts. And normally when people start talking about it, they talk about how there was this boom in terms of people buying cars and the parties that were happening around it. But I think many times that's an external perspective. So when you live in that area, one thing that we saw was a boom in people building houses, people building houses for themselves, for their families, for their parents, people renovating houses, people starting businesses, um, you know, people investing in their children's education. So you started seeing all of these multiple things that could, you know, that had the opportunity of shifting some, you know, generational poverty in our area. So, so for me, I think that's the big impact of putting money into people's hands as opposed to, you know, fixing some societal level problems, which is typically what socioeconomic development spend aims to do. Sure. Sure. Wow, those are some really yeah. powerful reflections and memories. And I can only imagine what an emotional and also like skill space in terms of backdrop it, it does provide to your career, which you then took into the renewable sector and found yourself in charge of some of those decisions, no, to how to invest social investments and um yeah, being part of the of um the corporate team. We, in our research, looking into some of those dynamics that ED practitioners, economic development practitioners do experience, so on the one hand, inside the fence or inside the companies, but also externally in their work. And I, I wondered if I could ask you first, in terms of your, your experiences from the internal perspective, like what are some of those dynamics, maybe within the teams, with the board, in terms of decision-making, or what, what impacts the work and the ability you have as an ED manager to invest those funds, for example? Um, anything, really. Just, yeah, I'd be curious to learn more how it feels and what it is like to be on the inside. Hmm. Okay, so I think the first thing is to recognize that, so as an ED manager, your work is governed by this tension between the company community interests and relations. So, so, so the first thing is that you're employed by this company, which has its own policies and processes, which has its own understanding around how it wants to, you know, deal with community firstly. And, 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 and I use deal very specifically because we need to recognize that that in most times the community is viewed at a corporate level as this risk to be managed right and then and then there's also just the corporate practices and perspectives that exist within the organization so you walk into an organization that sometimes has very clear sustainability practices and approaches on how we deal or how we relate to community. And because of the, the nature and the structure of the renewable energy industry, um, some entities were newly formed. So unless you've got this big international corporate structure whose culture 
influences the work that you do, generally then you'll be defining a new culture and structure and practice for how you relate with community at the start. Um, so, so, so the, I think the one thing that I'll say is that, so the thing that, that allowed me to, I think, work and, and, uh, the best way I could was that the organization I worked with and I worked for, um, company community relations was not new to them. So at a global level before they dealt with tensions in, in Mexico, in Chile, in Portugal, in etc. The context and the backdrop might be different to the South African one, um, but at least they had some experience. But at the same time, because generally, I mean, uh, as an organization, they were focused on growth. They allowed me and gave me the trust to do what I wanted to do with the role. So... And, and I recognize also that that's not, that wouldn't be everyone's experience. But at the same time, you can't, you can't disconnect, right, from the fact that policies and processes at a corporate level don't necessarily always speak to processes and the timing and pace with which things move at a community level. So you can sit back and bring in all this experience and say, I want to do X. And in order to do X at this community, best practice looks like this. And, and, and let me call best practice A. You know? Then you start looking at your internal processes and say, so internally, these are the things that they're afraid of. These are the risks they always want to mitigate. Um, these are the legal and financial considerations that they always want to make. And, and so if I look at my plan A, I then have to make those adjustments for all things at a corporate level. And then I end up with approach B, which is an adjustment of best practice, right? And then I go to my community and I look at the context of the community that I need to be doing this in. And, and you can't remove that context from a context from the relationship that that community already has with this IPP and the tensions that might exist and what's happening at the government level, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now I'm making another adjustments and it, it, now my approach looks like C. And then because we're operating within REAP, which has particular ED rules and regulatory requirements, etc., then I need to factor all of those again into my approach. And we call that D. So by the, by the time I'm ready to go into the ground and implement whatever it is that I'm trying to implement, I'm left with D, which sometimes looks quite significantly different from A, which was my best practice. Because I've had to, to look and take all of these considerations into, you know, into, into how I do things. And, and, and so the tension that constantly exists is how do I make sure that what I ultimately end up doing, so our D, looks as close to possible 
as best practice A as possible. And and I think that's the that's the you know the normal tension that exists. And 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 I think when we're looking at that, we must recognize that when you're looking and at corporate led community development, that as a company, so as an IPP, your 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 relationship with the community is inherently opportunistic. Right? Because that community didn't invite you in. You came in. Your initial relations with this community centered around, you know, fast tracking your agenda. And your the structures you've built in for how you deal with community centers primarily around your risk management and self-preservation as a company. And then when 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 anything that considers community work happens in the context of government and in particular local government and and in that in a local government context when you're working and entering a particular community what you're able to do relies significantly on for lack of a better word the benevolence of the political leadership in that area so 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 you're hoping that you've got a good leadership that's as invested in impacting positively in that community with as little self-interest as possible. And, 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 and you're hoping that this political leadership is supported or is, is exist within a backdrop of administrative systems and structures that support community development. And then at the same time, you're also assuming that the power dynamics at a community level allow that community agency in a positive direction, you know, and that, so, so, so there's all these dynamics and tensions that you're contesting with in, in, in how you do the work. And, and really, so, so there's a lot of having to step back and consider which of these dimensions is best able to serve the community positively at any stage while not compromising your role as an ED manager or isolating you internally. Beautiful. No, there is, there is so much richness in what you shared, which, yeah, you, you're linking the internal, you know, the, what, your resources, your opportunities um, in terms of the, 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 the decision-making space to the external dynamics as well, which... Obviously, they are deeply interconnected. Um, and you're putting it in a framework already, which is just absolutely amazing. And actually, our next episode will we'll go deeper into that. Like, how do you write and, and, and reflect and, and formulate your own practice framework? So that is, that is a perfect um, hint on that already. We would like to ask a bit more about the external, external experiences or with, with, with external stakeholders. But I wonder if before we go there, I could ask you, about some, I guess it's an industry reflection, perhaps. Um, in our interviews from the research, but also in the podcast, we, on the one hand, learned that a lot of the ED managers employed are women. <laughs> um, a lot of the ED managers employed are black South African women. Um, some are men. Some are white South African men. Um, and we heard some, I don't know, there, there seems to be differences in people's experiences um, to how you relate 
to, to external stakeholders, what opportunities you've got. I know there is some sort of women networking, mentoring programs also emerging in the South African renewable sector. What, what, what are, do you have any reflections you, you would feel comfortable sharing with us on like being a woman in that space, um, doing the work you, 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 you do or you did for the company? Okay, so I think the first thing that we need to be honest about is the reason why there's a high level of high number of women and black women in particular in the role. Personally, I don't think that has to do necessarily with um, companies having thought, oh no, you know, women are the best people to be in this position. But it has to do with the top management requirements of REAP. So every company had to identify which roles they would specifically target for black people, and then they'd get additional points for black women. I know this is quite politically incorrect to say, but following the South African narrative, if whenever they, those roles are, are required, where you're required to prescribe those roles to black women, typically we are always going to make it HR and BEE or transformation or something along those lines. And that's because it allows us to fulfill that obligation without necessarily having black women in engineering, in legal, in, in finance. So, so I think that's a start. Um, and then there's a second part in terms of the, the expectation around what it is that you would push for. So, so I, I mean, I, I feel that in my role when I started, you know, the expectation was I'll focus on, on community and I'll be happy with community and reporting and all of that. Whereas I got in there and I said, well, every single element of this economic development scorecard is something that I want to focus on. Um, I want to understand what we're doing in terms of jobs. I want to understand what we're doing in terms of procurement. I want to know what we're doing in terms of ownership right across the board. And, 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 and I could see that there was this initial discomfort, you know, um, you know, during construction, I wanted to arrive on site and understand what are the dynamics that are, you know, that exist at site that might directly influence the work that I get to do as an ED manager. And, and the reason for that is because we tend to think that the community development work starts when you start spending money. When in fact, the relationship with the community starts during construction phase. It starts with what your recruitment processes looked like. What, you know, how you managed the contractors in terms of how they deal with in-migration. What relationship was built already with the municipality, with the community and other government departments during that. All of those things directly impact on the relationship that you have with the community and what you're allowed to do with it afterwards. Um, but it's a relationship that you've got to push for when, when you enter. And, 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 and so if, 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 there's, if there's that dynamism around what the work looks like, but also 
how the organization could have narrowed your role, it, it, that directly impacts then at a corporate level how you relate, whether it's at a board level or just even at your exco, you know, management level. And, and, and the reality is that to be able to push any types of boundaries, you need to have a strong relationship and trust at that exco level and at that board level. Yo, um, yeah, I guess the ED scorecard and ED requirements are so much more than just community relations and community engagement, of course. Um, but what were your experiences with the dynamics outside of the fence um, in terms of your engagement with government, citizens and other companies and development actors? Which for you are the experiences that stood out or that stand out um, that you recall having an impact on the way that you thought about your work or that shifted your practices in some way? Um, hmm. Okay, so, so there'll be multiple ones. So, so uh, a positive one it, that I had was, you know, I, work, I walked into one of the communities and, and obviously the, the company would have its own perspective that they're briefing me on around how different this community is, um, whether they have high expectations, the political tensions, et cetera, et cetera, all of that that existed within a community. And, and the one thing that I started making time to do was to go do walks in this community. So if I was having a meeting, whether it's at the school or at the clinic or wherever, um, I'd, I'd be with our community liaison officer and we'd park somewhere and take a walk. And the reason why taking a walk makes such a huge difference is you can, you, you bump into people, right? And you can ask questions about this person and, and their history and their context and all of that. You can look at people's households and get stories about who lives here, who does this, who does that. You can have conversations with people as you're passing the street. And, and some of them have already been impacted by your IPP in some way or another. Some haven't, etc. It gives you a richness of your context and your environment beyond the statistics. And, but it also allows you to see this community as individual people, individual families, and, and just it humanizes them. Because sometimes, you know, the, the, the talk around community that looks at people as a collective, somehow we lose the richness of seeing the individuals and the groups of individuals that make up this community. And, 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 and sometimes in understanding and getting some insights of these personal experiences and personal stories of these people, you know, allows you to, to make some nuanced changes or improvements into your approach, whether it's at an engagement perspective or at a, you know, programmatic level, you know, but it also strengthens relationship building. Um, and I remember in one of the communities, I had this thing where 
either on a quarterly or a half yearly basis, we could have a town hall meeting. And I mean, town hall meetings are scary, right? Because there's little old you and there's five. I mean, that was there'd be more than 200 people in this packed hall who all want to hear what you have to say, but also have so many questions. Um, and in those moments, those relationships that have been built through the walkabouts, through just sometimes getting, arriving at the library and having a chat with the librarian, etc. They build up also some social capital for you, such that sometimes you don't have to defend yourself because other members of the community can defend your approach for you. And not because you need defending, because... Because they understand also where you are coming from and where the gap might be between where you are coming from and where the community is coming from. So I'd say for me, that's, that's something that really um, impacted how, how I think about my approach. Um, I'd say I've had all my interactions with with mayors, with local councillors, have also been great learning experiences. And I'm not going to be critical around them, but I think what they've left me with, all those engagement, is that we really need to, to go back to basics in South Africa as a whole, around building... I don't know what to call them, social structures and civic power and agency at a community level. I think we need to, I don't know if it's strength, help the community um, strengthen their agency, but their, their recognition around how they need to be careful around who speaks on their behalf and who acts on their behalf and even, you know, strengthen their capacity and their structures and their methods through which they're able to hold power accountable. For me, I think that's the big missing part because at a political level, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. There's, like I said, you, you just, you you had you can only rely on the benevolence of the political leadership. If the political leader you have is not benevolent, does not have a heart for their person, their people, you can engage them till you're blue. And and it's not going to help. How How do you bring those methodologies? How do you stay awake to what you gauge is needed and and and, and right and. So what what is needed to sustain that reflective practice of an ED manager as as you describe it? Like what what allows you to be able to reflect and um gather strength and maybe rethink or learn? I'm not sure. Um I, I think the challenge is that in many times the ED role as as the you know, as the ED manager, you are required to be everything. And it's difficult to step back if you are the person who leads engagement, the person who delivers on the ground, the person who manages all this service providers and contractors you have in your delivery, 
the person who handles all the reporting and engagements with government and all of that. I think if you're constantly on a treadmill and running, you don't have time to step back. So, so, so I don't know how do we build a practice and organizational structures that at least create space for stepping back and, and thinking and reflecting. Because otherwise, your role becomes a crisis management role. And, and, and you can only... I don't think you can build in a crisis mode. Mm. And with, with the energy transition gathering steam, well, not on paper quite yet, but at least in spoken words, I suppose, um, we, we are looking at significant new rollouts now and, and, and with that opportunities to mobilize that type of capacity you are referring to um, in communities in terms of accountability and also the, putting the private sector further and further or maybe even the public sector, if whoever it is who is the human face to a, a new infrastructure or wind farm, solar farm, whatever it might be coming in to replace maybe coal plants, like that person, that team, that opportunity um, will need to be utilized, especially in our economic climate. Like we, we can't afford to not. So to get all the moving pieces right, it, yeah, we need to really work together. Hmm. So I think for me, the past years of REAP have an opportunity to offer some great insights as to what what practices we need to bring into the broader argument around the energy transition, right? Because the energy transition, um, you know, most of the time when we're debating it, we're constantly looking at it from a perspective of winners and losers. You know, it's so 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 it's the coal sector and coal communities losing, and you know the renewable energy sector and communities winning. And I don't know if that's a constructive enough base from which to build as a first. Um, then there's an, there's an issue around the relationship between the sectors, so the coal sector and government and the relationship between the renewable energy sector and government. And I think those relationships also play a significant role in how relationships get built, what work is done on the ground in terms of building capacity, but also on acceptance at a community level. And I think those are some of the things that also need to be addressed. And then, and then there's, there's the intentionality. So, so there's a, and I think we spoke about it in, when I first talked about mining. So there's always an expectation that infrastructure led growth automatically has trickle down impact at a community level. And I think all of us working in the renewable energy sector and your research in 10 trans can shows 
that it's not automatic. There's, there's, there's groundwork that's needed. There's structures that need to be put in place. There's regulations that either enable or stifle that need to be put in place to actually ensure that this infrastructure-led development has socioeconomic development impacts. And, and, and so I think in this energy transition, we've got, a, we've got an opportunity to pause. And, and the nice thing is that the energy transition in how it's framed right now automatically sort of brings all the learnings from mining and renewable energy industry directly intersecting with each other, right? Because at a mining level, it forces us to have a deeper conversation around what, what life at communities looks like beyond mining. And then at the renewable energy level, it looks, then we get to have is, what, the, what do the value chain impacts look like at a community level? How do we deepen the impacts that we've had? And I think on both sides, there's enough learnings that can be taken into how we frame it at a regulatory level, at a corporate level, and how it's understood at a community and local government level. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Wow. You really let us in on some incredible gems of wisdom and experience from your, from your work and your life. Sure. I so look forward where we... We look forward to uh, yeah, trying to figure some of those big questions and the more detailed questions of regulatory or, or practice nature um, out together with you um, in the next couple of years. You know that this is the work that excites me, so obviously I'm always looking forward to it too. <laughs> sure, thank you. Thank you so much, Mr. Java. Thank you, guys. Masichaba is in so many positions to tell the story from many layered perspectives, including her childhood story and first-hand learning. She stresses the intention that is needed to make sure that, as she says, communities are taken along with any activities and investments in their areas. Her insights, personally and professionally as a practitioner, are exactly the type of information that should drive policy formulation. The Policy Practice Forum truly suggested to establish in the previous episode which is a concept that was invented at the learning event that brought government and industry into the same room, is one idea of how to formalize such learning opportunities. In our next episode, we chat to Bianca Jordan, who is one of the young and dynamic individuals working directly with communities in her role as ED manager. Mm -hmm.